And the reason we can sing blessing and glory and honor to this God is because he first spoke to us. And so let's read his word together. If you would stand with me as we do a responsive reading. We've already done a congregational reading where we all read Psalm 23 together. Now we want to do a responsive reading where I will read the first part of the Beatitude and then you as a congregation will join me in reading that which is designated by congregation. Are we set? All right, let's do this together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you prepare our hearts for the blessings of being your people and that we would acknowledge that your kingdom is upside down in relation to this world, and yet in reality it's right side up for us as your people. So prepare our hearts, Lord. Uh, we cannot grasp these things without the power of your spirit. We would not know these things without the teaching of your word. We would not be prepared to hear them without you using our pastor as a prepared vessel. So we pray, Lord, your anointing and your leadership in his life as he speaks to us. And may we understand that we are hearing the words of God and not the words of man. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are continuing our series on the Beatitudes called Upside Down. And uh, the Beatitudes, as we have been learning for the last couple of weeks, are, are where Jesus takes the culture's views of a blessed life and he turns them upside down. In the mid-80s, there was a movie that came out that wasn't a high-budget movie. It was started out as a small movie, but it somewhat became a, a, a classic here in the later years. It's, it's called The Prince's Bride. How many have seen it? It's a great movie. I highly recommend it. And if you haven't seen it, or to jog your memory, it's a fairy tale adventure about a farmham, farmham, hand, a farmhand named Wesley who must rescue his true love, Princess named Buttercup, and rescue her from this odious prince in order to marry and live happily ever after. And uh, I won't tell you any more about the movie, except for this one detail in the movie. There's this one scene in the movie in which Wesley makes this rather profound statement that goes somewhat unnoticed. Maybe if, when you watch the movie, you caught it, you noticed it, but for most people, it goes unnoticed. And here's the statement that he makes to, in the movie. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. It's a rather profound statement. Do you agree with that? The fact is, life is a saga of sorrows. 
In fact, notice this in your notes, if you want to take notes, or you can just follow along on the screen behind me. But ever since sin entered the world, mourning is a universal reality of life. Life is full of disappointments. Life is full of diseases and even death. And so we mourn these losses in life that stack up on one another. In death, we mourn the loss of a loved one. In disease, we mourn the loss of our health. In disappointment, we mourn the loss of our dreams, our desires. Ernest Hemingway once made a bet with a group of authors over lunch, and uh, it has since become somewhat legendary. And anyways, the guys, these authors at lunch, they bet Ernest Hemingway $10 that he could not come up with a short story only six words long. Hemingway took the bet, he pulled out a napkin, and he wrote the following story on this napkin, six words long. For sale, baby shoes never worn. There's certainly a saga of sorrows in those six words. But I'm sure, given enough time, you could come up with your own six-word story. Perhaps it may be something like this. There, there's been a terrible accident. I'm leaving. The marriage is over. Your position is no longer needed. I just want to be friends. The cancer isn't responding to treatment. You're not able to conceive. Here's a rose off the casket. Whatever six-word story you come up with, they all have the same title, the saga of sorrows. That is the reality of life we live in today. And yet no one wants to mourn, do they? No one says, I want to experience sadness and sorrow as a result of great suffering and disappointment and loss in my life. On the contrary, we do everything we can to stay away from suffering, but since you can't avoid suffering in this world, we do everything we can to stay away from mourning. And so we numb ourselves. We numb ourselves with entertainment, or we medicate the pain of sorrow with drinking and shopping or working or partying. We try to escape the sorrow by watching a movie or popping a pill or eating a container of Haagen-Dazs ice cream. We want to drown or ignore our sorrows, not mourn them. And so when Jesus says, on that mountainside, in this second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he is turning everything upside down. Makes you want to ask, where's the blessing in mourning? After all, any normal person would define a blessed life as a life that is free from mourning, not a life that is marked by mourning. But we can't twist this truth here in the Beatitudes without Jesus twisting it right back at us. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Seems upside down to us, does it not? But maybe the problem is that we've been so influenced by the culture around us that what seems upside down to us is really upside, right side up in the kingdom of heaven. 
If so, then Jesus is declaring, let's be honest here, he's declaring a mind-blowing truth here for us to ponder. And so let's discover the comfort of mourning in the second beatitude. Notice here, number one, the blessed. Who are the blessed? Well, it's quite obvious. The blessed, according to this beatitude, according to the words of Jesus Christ on that hillside, the blessed are those who mourn. Don Carson, who is a theologian and writer, comments, the world does not like mourners. Mourners are wet blankets. And yet Jesus says in the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Now two key words jump right out at us. And that is the word blessed and the word mourn. But how can there possibly be any connection between mourning and being blessed? It seems like a contradiction in terms, suggesting that one can be gleeful and gloomy at the same time. How is this possible? So far we've learned, though, that a blessed life means to have the approval of God or the favor of God. And this approval or favor of God produces a deep and lasting spiritual joy that is both independent of our circumstances and yet dependent on a right relationship with God. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, the most obvious question is, mourn what? What was Jesus talking about when he uses the word mourn? Well, let me start with what it does not mean. What Jesus is not referring to here. Jesus did not mean, blessed are the grim, cheerless Christians. Charles Spurgeon once remarked that some preachers he had known appeared to have their neckties twisted around their souls. Perhaps you know some Christ followers like that. Jesus did not mean we are to be sourpusses. He said, blessed are those who mourn, not blessed are those who moan and whine and complain. Nor did Jesus mean, blessed are those who mourn the sorrows of life. It is true, our Lord, our Heavenly Father, is very concerned about all the saga of sorrows that His children experience in life here on this earth. And the Lord promises in His Word, there are many places we could go to, in which He promises to console us and comfort us and strengthen us when we turn to Him for help. But that is not the kind of mourning Jesus had in mind in the second beatitude. So what kind of mourning is Jesus talking about here? Well, notice this in your notes. Jesus is talking about a deep, heartfelt grief over sin. Now the Apostle Paul helps us understand this heartfelt grief over sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 when he writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There are two kinds of grief in this world. Two kinds of grief over sin, specifically. There is godly grief, and then there is worldly grief. And only godly grief, according to the Apostle Paul here, produces repentance of sin that leads to salvation. This is the kind of mourning Jesus is talking about here in the second beatitude. He's, ta- he's referring to it, this heartfelt grief over sin. 
Now at this point, we can see that there is this logical connection then between the first beatitude and this second beatitude. The first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the second here says, blessed are those who mourn. To be poor in spirit, as we learned last Sunday, is simply to acknowledge one's poverty of spirit. To acknowledge one's sinfulness. Whereas to mourn is to now grieve over that sin. To grieve over one's sinfulness. As Thomas Watson, he joined the two of these together when he wrote, sin must have tears. And so godly grief in the second beatitude is none other than the result of poverty of spirit in the first beatitude. Why? Because the poor in spirit will mourn their sinfulness. The poor in spirit are aware of their spiritual bankruptcy and complete dependence on God for their salvation. The poor in spirit know they are totally unable to save themselves. And once you see, once God opens your eyes, opens your heart, if you will, to begin to see your sinfulness, to begin to see your poverty in spirit, it will lead you to godly grief. And so the second beatitude is really the emotional counterpart to the first beatitude, which is intellectual in nature. It's an awareness. It's something we see and we acknowledge. And the second beatitude is we feel it. In other words, mourning is simply the emotional impact of recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy. And mourning is the way you feel when you understand how spiritually poor you really are before God Almighty. Now the word that Jesus used here for mourn in the second beatitude, it's an interesting word. In fact, it is the strongest and most severe grief a person can experience in life. It's the deep inner agony expressed by outward weeping. In the words of William Barclay, it's the kind of grief which takes such hold that it cannot be hidden. It is not only the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart, it is the sorrow which brings the unrestrainable tears to the eyes. In fact, this word mourn that Jesus uses here is the word for mourning the death of a loved one. Such as when Jacob in the Old Testament thought his son Joseph was killed by a wild animal. When in reality, we know that his brothers, you know, threw him in a pit and then sold him off to Egypt. And so they took his coat of many colors and put blood all over it, handed it to their father Jacob and told him, Joseph is dead, we found this, he's been killed, Dad. And Joseph's response was, What? He mourned, he wept bitterly for days on end, and nothing could console his soul. He was so heartbroken over the death of his son. And so while Jesus is not talking necessarily about the, the sorrow of bereavement here in the second beatitude, what Jesus is doing is he's taking that level of mourning and he's applying it to the sorrow of sin. In other words, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn over sin like they would mourn over the death of a loved one. 
And so mourning here, it means to grieve over sin as if someone you love has just died. It's the kind of sorrow that causes the soul to ache and the heart to break. Now, it is also true, it is also true that the Bible is the most joyful book in the world, amen? Absolutely. But it is also the most serious book in the world. The Bible tells us how we have rebelled against God and how willing he was to suffer in order to redeem us. And at the center of the biblical story is Jesus Christ, who Isaiah says was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible is filled with calls to mourn, incentives for mourning, and even warnings against a callous lack of mourning. In fact, there's one whole book that's dedicated to mourning. In the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations is all about mourning. About one-third of the Psalms are laments. And so mourning is all over the pages of Scripture here. Blessed are those who mourn, and specifically, blessed are those who mourn over sin. But what sin specifically? Let me give you two. Number one, first, mourn your own sin. The reason for our poverty of spirit is our sin, by which we strive to live independent of God and run our own lives. And so mourn your own sin. Mourn your sins of disobedience against God. Mourn the folly of your rebellion against God. Mourn the currency that you think you can offer God from your spiritual bank account. Mourn your spiritual resume. Look at all your righteous deeds, and according to Isaiah 64.6, they are just filthy rags in the eyes of God. All through the Bible, God's people are characterized by mourning over personal sin. David, King David is a good example when he writes in Psalm 38.4, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. And later on, in the same chapter, in verse 18, he says, For I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. When Isaiah had a vision of the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, with such dazzling glory that even the angels covered their faces as they worshipped him, Isaiah the prophet cried out in Isaiah 6-5, what? Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Even the Apostle Paul, he gives clear testimony of what it means to mourn over sin when he laments in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, let's, let's just be honest here. I'll be honest with you, you be honest with me. That's what we should do, right? We're in church. So let's just be up front, let's be honest, because we're all in the same boat here. Mourning sin is a foreign concept for most believers today. I think you would agree with that. I know for me personally, it's not something I practice on a daily basis. In fact, I'll confess, it's not even something I really practice on a regular basis. And so this lesson is very convicting for me. In fact, when I look at my own heart of hearts, I have to say I probably mourn more over a KU basketball loss than I do over my own sin. And perhaps all of us together would have to admit, man, we, have, we mourn the loss of a chief 
Chiefs in a playoff than we do over sin. It's a foreign concept. And yet, listen to the testimony of just some of God's men from years past. I'll give you two examples here. It was said of the martyr John Bradford, who was burned at the stake in 1555, that scarcely a day passed by in which he did not weep over his sin. David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the American Indians, wrote in his journal on October 18, 1740, I quote his words, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. I never before felt so pungent in a deep a sense of the odious nature of sin as at this time. My soul was then unusually carried forth in love to God and had a lively sense of God's love to me. And what makes this beatitude even all the more convicting is that the mourn here, this word, it's a continuous verb. Which means that Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on those who are characterized by mourning over sin. In other words, it's a part of their life. We could literally translate the first part of this beatitude, blessed are those who are continuing to mourn. In other words, true believers, Christ followers, are constantly broken over their sin. They perpetually mourn their sins, thus perpetually repent of their sins. As John Blanchard writes, there is no greater index of a professing Christian's true spiritual state than sensitivity to his or her own sin. But sadly, this is so often lacking. So what Jesus means here by the word mourn, blessed are those who mourn, first and foremost, he is talking about mourning our personal sins. But there's a further application of this. Notice number two, we should also mourn the sins of the world. You see, the kind of mourning Jesus means here must begin with grief over your own sin, but it moves quickly to grief over sins of the world. Sin that has corrupted all of humanity and makes all people poor in spirit. And so if you truly grieve your own sin, you cannot help but grieve the sin all around you. After all, the whole world outside of Jesus Christ is corrupted. It's defiled and it stinks of sin. Everywhere we look, what do we see? We see signs of Satan's power, signs of sin's pollution. Brian Edwards is not exaggerating when he says that this world has Satan's graffiti all over it. And so let me, let me ask, throw out a question here. What is your reaction? What is our reaction to the graffiti of sin we see all around us? What is your reaction to the evil, the greed, the immorality, the injustice and violence that we see all over our world? Lot. You may remember Lot in the Old Testament, the nephew of Father Abraham. Lot was hardly an example of virtue, and yet, while he was living in Sodom, it says in 2 Peter 2.8 that he was tormented in his righteousness, righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He ever wondered what Lot saw and heard in Sodom? 
whatever wickedness Lot saw and heard in the city of Sodom, what we learn here is blessed are those who do not merely condemn the evils of their society, but also mourn over them. Jeremiah, the prophet, is called the weeping prophet, not because life was hard for him, and by the way, it was, but rather because the people he was ministering to were hard in their sins. And so Jeremiah 9.1, he writes, Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. When Jesus Christ looked at the city of Jerusalem, it says he wept over it. I think we're, we're so used to seeing the effects of sin in our city and across our nation and even our world that it's easy to become indifferent to the point that we just kind of shrug our shoulders instead of falling to our knees and grieving. The Apostle Paul, when he visited Athens, we're told in Acts 17, 16, that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. You go back to the Old Testament, and when Moses discovered that the Israelites committing adultery, it broke his heart. Deuteronomy 9.18 says, Then once again, I, this is Moses speaking, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long he mourned. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing His anger. And I wonder how many of us are moved to tears by the idolatry that characterizes our society. I hope you're beginning to see just a little bit the force of the second beatitude here when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over sin. Mourn their sin in the sins of the world. Preaching in 1889, Charles Spurgeon said, Brethren, when I have carefully considered and inwardly perceived the holiness of God's law, I have and I have shivered and trembled. And then he encapsulates it with this. What poor creatures we are. Yet thoughts like this. What poor creatures we are. Thoughts like this should not drive us to depression or despair like it did Judas Iscariot. When he mourned sincerely, but he mourned hopelessly after he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Listen, mourning sin is not the same as hopeless confession of guilt. God calls us to mourn in the assurance that if we do, He will graciously respond in blessing. Therefore, biblical mourning for sin, it's not self-centered, it is Christ-centered. It is God-focused. It does not wallow in despair. It looks for deliverance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the words of R.W. Glenn, this is gospel grief. Judas. Judas saw what his love of money did to Jesus. Judas saw that Jesus died on the cross, but there was one thing missing. 
What Judas did not see was Jesus dying willingly for sinners like him. He did not see Jesus full of grace and love and mercy for him. And thus, his guilt was too much for him. And so according to Matthew 27, 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and he hanged himself. But we also know there was another disciple who betrayed Jesus. His name was Peter. Peter mourned his sin. Listen, Peter wept bitterly after denying Jesus three times. Peter cried his eyes out. He cried loudly with an overwhelming kind of grief. He was full of sorrow and it showed. Like Judas, Peter betrayed Jesus. And like Judas, Peter felt a deep remorse, but Peter did not kill himself. Instead, he moved forward with hope in Jesus Christ. And that's the difference between gospel grief and worldly grief. In the end, one runs away from Jesus and the cross, and the other runs toward Him on the cross. Why? Because the cross reveals to us how terrible my sin is, but it also reveals to me how certain my pardon is in the grace of Jesus Christ. Listen, when we understand when God begins to illuminate our minds and our hearts, and we begin to understand God's grace at the cross of Jesus Christ, we will weep for our sins, and then we will run to Jesus for help and hope and forgiveness. As Tim Keller says, the gospel creates the only kind of grief over sin which does not crush now, before we move on to the blessing in the second beatitude, I want us to pause here for a moment. And I want us to just consider a question that, I, that we rarely ask, that we rarely ponder and think about. And that question is this. It's in your notes, come up on the screen. What is the opposite of mourning over sin? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn over sin. So what's the opposite of that? I would submit to you that the opposite of mourning over sin is laughing at sin. How does our culture react to the idea of sin? Listen, sin is a laughing matter today in our society, is it not? It is a matter for mockery in our culture today. Most stand-up comedians and most late-night TV hosts build their acts around sin. Even most TV sitcoms make light of sin. But Jesus declares in what some people think is, is also the sermon, same Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke chapter 6, verse 25, and this is Luke's version of it, translation of it, his, his summary of it, if you will. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The word woe, you know what woe means? It's judgment. Think of woe as the opposite of blessed. And so where Jesus says blessed for those who mourn, when you hear the word woe or see the word woe, that is the exact opposite of what blessing means. It's curse. Blessing, woe, curse. Jesus is saying, cursed to you who laugh now. Like most people, I like to laugh. I'm sure all of you like to laugh. In fact, the Bible is not against laughing. We know from the book of Proverbs and in other places that laughter is good for the soul. It's good medicine. And so Jesus is not a killjoy. But how often do I laugh at the very things that should cause me to mourn? 
Listen, the great need among God's people today is to cry instead of laugh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul writes to some nonchalant Christians who were trivializing sin in their church, and he says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? In one of the most overlooked verses in all the Bible, James 4, 9 says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And so is anyone out there mourning? Is anyone in here mourning? You see, where, where is the Christ follower who sees the sin in our culture and mourns over it? And I ask this question of myself. Jesus is telling us that mourning isn't just a no-big-deal thing. It isn't just a take-it-or-leave-it thing. Oh, no, He is telling us here in the Beatitudes that mourning is a necessary thing for life in the kingdom of heaven. Mourning is an attitude that begins when we enter the kingdom of heaven, and it lasts as long as we are here on earth. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn over sin. So what then is the blessing for those who do so? Well, notice this, point number two, the blessing. It says, they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Now notice that Jesus does not say mourners are blessed because they mourn. Rather, Jesus says, mourners are blessed because they will be what? Comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Listen, you will be blessed not because you mourn. After all, everybody mourns, do they not? Because they're suffering all over the place. Everybody suffers, so everybody mourns, but not everybody who mourns is blessed. The reason those who mourn are blessed is because, one, they mourn sin, and they will be comforted by God. And this comfort begins now. The actual sense of Jesus' words are, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be immediately comforted, and they will continue to be so. The shall be is future tense in the sense of you mourn first and then the comfort follows. And so we experience the blessing of God's comfort now. We don't have to wait for a time in the distant future to taste the comfort of God. At the same time, this comfort is only a partial realization of what we will know in the future when Jesus returns and He consummates the kingdom of heaven here on earth. But this still leaves us with a question. What kind of comfort, then, is Jesus talking about here? What kind of comfort did he promise? Well, you can be sure it's far deeper than a sympathy card. It's far more than just a simple cliche, cheer up, things will get better. Those things are not bad in and of themselves. Hey, I appreciate cards and sympathy cards as well. This word comfort here, it, it literally means to strengthen. And so our mourning, get this, it puts us in touch with the eternal resources of God and the result is God's comfort who is the God of all comfort according to 2 Corinthians 1.3. 
I love what David writes in Psalm 34, 18, where he says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and He saves or He strengthens those whose spirits have been crushed. God's blessing to mourning over sin. God's blessing for those who mourn, first of all, is you will be comforted by God's forgiveness. You will be comforted by God's forgiveness. Listen, godly mourning brings the blessing of God's forgiveness. Those who mourn their sins are blessed because they are the only ones who are forgiven. They are the only people in the world who are free from the guilt of their sins. And so those who mourn their sin are comforted by the only comfort that can relieve their guilt, and that is God's forgiveness of their sins. This is why mourning over sin does not focus on ourselves but rather on God, who alone can forgive our sins. In fact, mourning over sin doesn't even really focus on our sins. It places our sins at the cross and focuses on what Jesus did at the cross. One commentator writes, the greatest of all comforts is the pardon pronounced on every contrite mourning sinner. That is the greatest comfort of all. No wonder David writes in Psalm 32, 1 through 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this comes on the heels after David is confronted with his own odious sin, if you will. His sin of adultery with Bathsheba. His sin of murder of Bathsheba's husband. And Nathan confronts him with it. And after God works him over, he mourns it, and now he receives the blessing of mourning sin, and that is the forgiveness of his sin from God. And he writes these words to us in Psalm 32. There is no greater comfort than the forgiveness of sins when you are guilty of sin. But it doesn't stop there. God's comfort is also, you will be comforted by God's Spirit. You will be comforted by God's Spirit. When Jesus was about to leave this world, He told the disciples that He would send the Holy Spirit another comforter or another helper. In John 14, 16-17, it says, Jesus is speaking, and I will ask the Father, and, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. This means God's comfort is relational. It comes in the form of God's divine companionship. God's Spirit, listen to this, is our ally. And He personally binds up our sorrows and comforts us while living out God's kingdom rule here on this earth. And so... We will be comforted by God's forgiveness. We will be comforted by God's Spirit. And last here, you will be comforted by God's promise. Of God's promise. And God made all kinds of promises to us, but let me highlight just one of these. God promised in Isaiah 61, 1-3, that Jesus would come as the Messiah. He would come into this world, and here's what the prophet Isaiah promised that He would do when He came. To bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, to give them oil of gladness instead of mourning. Folks, listen. We experience this comfort in some measure now 
as believers in Christ. And yet, and yet, do we not? We still mourn over the havoc of our suffering and the death which sin spreads throughout this world. But the fullness of that comfort that Jesus came when He came the first time will come when God's kingdom finally comes and Christ's comfort will be complete. Only then will sin be no more. And according to Revelation 21.4, it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Do you know what one of the biggest differences is between heaven and hell? There's a lot of differences between heaven and hell. But let me point out one difference. In heaven, get this, Every tear will be wiped away forever. But in hell, there will be weeping of never-ending tears. Only those who mourn their sin, only those who experience God's forgiveness for their sins, through faith in Jesus Christ, will know what it is to have their tears wiped away by the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. Man, that is a, is that, does that not bring comfort to your soul? Listen, folks, church, the question that this beatitude leaves us with, the question here is not it is not, do you mourn? That's not the question. Because everybody mourns because everyone suffers. Everyone has a six-word story. A saga of sorrows. And so the question of this beatitude is not, do you mourn? Everyone mourns. The question that confronts us in the second beatitude is, what kind of mourner are you? What kind of mourner am I? Are you a blessed mourner who knows the comfort of heaven, or are you a miserable mourner who only knows the sorrows of this world? What we see here in this second beatitude is that the saddest thing in life is not a grieving heart. The saddest thing in this life is a heart that does not grieve over sin. For only the person who grieves over sin knows the comfort of heaven. All other mourners, listen, are miserable in this world because there's nothing that can bring them comfort. For they only know the sorrows of this world. Without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, without its emotional counterpart, grief over sin, no one receives the comfort of heaven. So how then, how then does one move from a miserable mourner to a blessed mourner? You look at the cross. You look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, 
The cross of Christ is where we see our poverty of spirit and then mourn our poverty of spirit. In other words, you will mourn to the degree that you see God's grace and your sin at the cross, and you will be comforted to the degree that you see God's grace and your sin at the cross. I know it seems upside down, doesn't it? It seems upside down. But these first two Beatitudes teach us that those who live in the shadow of the cross learn to mourn in a way that God comforts. And so I ask you, what kind of mourner are you? Are you a blessed mourner? Or are you a miserable mourner? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for his life, his sinless life. And we thank you for the words that he spoke, which are revealed to us here in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically this second beatitude, Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And yet, Lord, we confess that this beatitude is more than likely, probably not a regular part of our lives. It is one that we don't live out on a regular basis. Lord, I confess that in my own life. Forgive us, forgive me for not mourning over sin like you call us to do in kingdom living. But Lord, we also praise you that when we do, when there is mourning over sin, we can count on the certainty of your blessing that we will be comforted by God. First and foremost, by the forgiveness that is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we give thanks for the comfort of your spirit that dwells within us and strengthens us and lifts us up. And we give thanks for the comfort of your promise to return. When there will be a day that there will be no more tears, they will be wiped away, no more death, no more saga of sorrows. And so, Lord, help us to discern through these words whether or not we are a blessed mourner or a miserable one. And help us to move to blessing in your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As the praise team sings, this is our time to respond. And so you do so right where you're seated in prayer. You cry out to God as he leads.